Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday the 14th of September with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The government has announced uh, the launch of uh, the new Land Development Agency which will have a 1.25 billion euro budget and is expected to free up state land for the construction of 150,000 new houses over the next 20 years. The intervention comes as uh, the housing crisis has led to a record number of people who are homeless or unable to afford their own homes. Under the scheme, 10% of the homes built will be on state land and for social housing, 30% will be affordable homes. The long-term target is for a 50-50 split, meaning half of the homes built would go for sale on the open market and the other half would provide affordable and social housing. Damien English, Minister of State with Special Responsibility for Housing, is on the line to tell us a little bit more about how this will work. Minister, when will people expect to get the keys in the first instance under this intervention? Well, to be clear, this intervention is about the long-term planning for this country and long-term housing solutions, not just the next couple of years, but for the next 15, 20 years and beyond that. And it's part of our long-term plans that we would have launched last February on the project 2040, which again is the 25-year plan for this country. So it's not meant to be the quick fix for housing uh, next year or the year after, it will probably and all more than likely deliver some uh, some houses in 2020 and certainly uh, from then on it will deliver probably in the thousands. And the first but of the houses that will be turnkey ready will be in 2020, is it? I would expect that. Some of the first initial sites I've been looking at and, and, and like we will engage now with, 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 with all the state bodies on some of the other sites and they might come in quicker, but some of the sites we've looked at we know uh, potentially you could be on site in 2019 building houses and you could deliver them in 2020. But Michael, I want to be clear. This is not the housing plan. This is one part of, of government's actions. This is about fixing housing for the, for the rest of the years because we've had boom and bust for too long, from 90,000 houses one year to practically zero the next year. We want to put in place a firm footing where the states are involved in managing land, managing housing uh, 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 through, all the, through all the cycles, through all economic, uh, economic cycles, and to make sure that we won't have the housing situation we have today in the future. So it's long-term thinking, which yes, will help our plans uh, from 2020 to 2021 onwards, but it's not about houses for this year or next year. 
I don't want to confuse the two. And the idea to a large degree is to deliver housing quicker, is it not, Minister? Housing that was already planned. I mean, if you take the old Central Mental Hospital, for example, housing was planned to be constructed on that site. The hope here is that the land agency can plan for that before the HSE moves out and the housing will be delivered quicker. So when you talk about 150,000 new houses, how many of them are actually new or how many of them are to be delivered quicker than would have been previously the case? Okay, just to be clear, Michael, what this is about is about a land development agency being in a position with funding, taxpayers' money through the, through the pension, the, the, to the scheme there of about $1.25 billion to invest in land and to manage land. Yes, it is also to bring forward some mm. housing projects quicker, but it's, it's, to, it's to make sure that the state is using its resources in the best way it possibly can to influence housing, the delivery of housing mm. and the price of housing. But, but can, can you break down for us, uh, out of the 150,000, how many would be additional homes? Okay, there, well, there are going to be new homes, okay? No, we but uh, I mean, uh, in addition to what was already envisaged. Yeah, well, there was no, there's no plan to deliver houses uh, on, 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 on that drum site yet because it's still in use. Well, uh, it's we, been planned for 20 years since... There's been, there's been a lot of debate around it. They're, they're still in its use. Um, we hope that we can start putting houses on that from 2020 on. And this is about planning for that site. But it's also about looking at all the other sites. And we would have produced a list of sites uh, about a year ago but, that the state owned. But that makes no sense, sites. Minister. With respect to you, you're saying that there's no plan. Uh, so you don't know how many houses were planned to go on the Dundrum site. And now we do. Or we have some way of calculating 150,000 houses. Michael, don't try and confuse the matter. No, I'm not I, trying to I, confuse I, the well, matter. I'm trying to understand the matter, Minister. Okay, well, I, I it's a confusing you. matter that I'm trying to understand by asking no, you questions so that you can explain it to us. Okay, I'm happy to, to explain it to you. This is about looking at the existing state land we have and also going out there and buying more and assembling sites. The figure of 150,000, if this is done in Germany, it's done in the Netherlands and other countries as well. Mm. We've looked at their model, we've seen how, how they've done it. And basing it off their model and their percentages, it has the potential to deliver at least 150,000 houses and maybe many more and influence that. What we're saying very clearly is the sites that uh, it already owns, that, that we've managed to, to sort out in the last couple of months, can deliver um, up to t- up to 10,000 houses in the next two or three years. That's just starting OK, today. but the site in Dundrum is... In order to understand it, I mean, we need to have something tangible. And the site in Dundrum is uh, a site that I'd imagine a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, I think it's about 30 acres, is it? Yeah, the site in Dundrum yeah. has, has possibilities, right? Right. If master planned right, to deliver... Yeah. Potentially a thousand, fifteen hundred houses. But I want to be clear. Just, just let me. Give and one and that was envisaged previously, second, though. Michael, Michael, can I have one second, please? Okay. On site, we're not saying today that it's exactly one thousand houses mm. or twelve hundred houses because you have to get buy-in from the community. We want to master plan the site and see what else it needs. Yes. It's not just mm. houses. This is a development agency, okay. not just for houses. Okay, to but develop ideal sites in a positive way. The community. Okay. Yes, to the deliver house. I, I, I'm not sure why why we're arguing, Minister. But but I mean I mean I, I think the question is a legitimate question, and people are, are hearing that the state is going to invest over a, a billion euro of uh, people's money into delivering new houses, and. People want to know, what does that mean? So you're talking okay. about this site in Dundrum, uh, which is 30 acres, was formerly the Central Mental Hospital, uh, could maybe house uh, or uh, allow for 1,500 new homes. Uh, that was always the case, wasn't it? 
there's no it, it, it's always been talked about I've, I've listened to many debates yeah. for years without, but there was no plan today to put houses on that site so what I'm saying is this agency now will take charge of that site and make it happen okay. and in many other sites now, so we can knock to, that off the 150,000 because that's absolutely. state land and the objective when the decision yes, was made right. to yes, close right. the central so, mental hospital was to provide housing on that site yes but maybe to help the matter it's separate to the plan that, I, that I'm working on week to week to deliver the 50,000 social houses because at this moment in time across 900 other sites we have uh, over 14,000 mm. houses in the pipeline. No, but in terms of, of this agency, which is as important as the establishment of the ESB or Erlingers or these other bodies that Leo Vradiger was talking about yesterday, uh, what does it mean in terms of additional new houses? Houses we wouldn't have got uh, okay. if it wasn't right. for this agency. Uh, and okay, right, that's okay. I know now what you're trying to ask. Okay, this agency will have a role in delivering possibly up to 150,000 houses if you if you follow the formula it is used in other countries. What we're saying is there's key sites, uh, Dundrum was one of them, and there's some in every county mm. that have been have been talked about or been looked at or people are scratching their heads for years, but nothing has happened. So this agency now will be given the job on behalf of the state to go in anywhere the state owns land to try and see how can we bring that to, uh, to housing and to make it actually happen in a planned way, in an effective way, and in a quick way, as well as in an affordable way. Now, it also has the job then to add in to the state land, so to buy up more land and to change land and to swap lands and sell lands where need be, mm. but to bring forward housing. And it's not just, it's a combination of social houses, affordable houses mm. and private houses. So, and, and, just to be clear, Michael, yeah. in the past, the state haven't really been involved in managing of land. And if you go back to the Kenny report many years ago, it has said the state should be somewhat involved uh, in managing land. At the moment, the state will own land and try to provide the infrastructure, mm. and that gets bought or sold, and very often at massive prices. Okay, so, so explain here, to us how the state will manage the land, because okay. what, what happens then? If you ha- have a site, uh, so, and a developer wants to develop on that land, wh- what's the role of the state in making sure that happens? Okay, so in this situation, now, what the land development agency will do, you'll you'll have a team of experts, possibly up to, up to about 25 people will work on this in this unit, and they'll have expertise in construction, property management, uh, site delivery, all those different things, uh, key uh, key skills that we don't have in every local authority or every state body. So there'll be a crack team for delivering housing. I've, I have a similar one in my department to work on social housing only with local authorities and help them. This will be to manage land at a greater scale, okay? They'll have, they'll have power CPO if need be. So their job will be to look at... Compulsory purchase system. order, yeah. If, yeah sorry, yeah, mm-hmm. if, if, if need be. And hopefully they won't have to do that. But their job then would be to work with the state bodies today, who could be the Department of Education, could be the HSE, mm. whoever owns that land, to work with them to develop their land. And then they'll master planners, they'll bring it through the planning system, they'll work out what's the best um, type of housing, what's the best uh, other other uh, other uh, requirements on the site, be it for a community, be it for shopping centres, whatever is needed in the area. And then their job would be to actually make it happen mm. and to make sure then that we get good value, A, for taxpayers' money, but we also get some social housing, some affordable housing, but also release affordable housing. So their job will be, they'll specialise in actually bringing the site from a green field into housing. And, or in, in, some cases, and in some circumstances, the land will be sold to developers, will it? In, in some cases. Okay. We, we, and okay, what if so, the developer and, sits on the land? Oh no, don't worry, Michael, this will all be covered. So naturally, if we're going to use the state land, be, it'll be on a licensing arrangement uh, in some cases. In other cases, it'll be a giant venture and you'll mm. develop it with the private sector. And on some sites, There'll be no no other developers. It'll just be the state. Mm, so they'll mm. manage each site individually. But mm. it'll be done. It's not a case of 
um, handing away a site and, and, and sitting back and hoping that in, in years to come, mm. houses. No, there's a, we're developing a licensing system that I'll say to Michael Reed, Michael Reed or whoever it is, mm. put up for option. Here's a site we want to deliver a thousand houses. We want 30% social, 10% or 10% affordable, and then you you see what the market are prepared to do with you, and you work with them on that, mm. and you release that land by site, okay, uh, sorry, by license. Now, how this helps is at the moment I meet a lot of builders on a weekly basis who who have teams together who could build houses. Uh, for us, for the state, or for privately, but they actually can't get onto a site. They can't get any land because mm. it's too expensive. So, okay. if the state so, so the land will the be sold off cheaply to the developers, will it? The land will be made available and, and, and at whatever price. Sold off cheaply. But it, it has to, naturally, if you're going to go right, to okay, and yeah, they bring the land. Uh, and you. and will there be any restriction on what the developer can sell sixty percent of the houses he builds on it? Yes, Michael. Again, and, and I want to be clear on this: every site will be looked at individually. And that's why you have a team of experts yeah. who can do that, working with our local authorities, working with our state agencies, and say, OK, what's the best use of this piece of state land? How can we get houses and houses at the right price, right mm. quality, right design? OK, and yeah, and happen. you have this stipulation of 40% uh, between uh, affordable and social. But what about the other 60%? Will there be a cap on the price that Again. the developer can sell those houses okay. for? Right. Again, Michael. This, this will be, right, state-owned land. So we have to decide on each site. Well, okay, do you have all social housing? Do you have 70%? And then, you're mm. right, some of that then will be private. And then you will decide, okay, we want to, we want to release this, this land at a certain price mm. to deliver a house in a certain price yeah. range, and you'll work with the developer on that. So some cases you might say, yes, there's a cap. Other cases you might not. So, so you're, you're going to, to tell I, I developers to, what to do? Uh, well, yes, Michael, we're going to manage because you will be in control. And this is the whole point of having... Really? A, mm. can, I, can I finish the point? Mm. Not, uh, please don't try and spin this. I'm not saying every site. I'm saying some sites we mm. can decide because the state will be in control. Mm. What you've had in the past is the state were not involved. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about where you sell the land to the developer uh, and the obligation on the developer is to put 40% of the houses constructed aside for affordable or social. Uh, what restrictions will there be on the outstanding 60%. Yes, Will there be a yes. cap on the price that they can charge for the houses? OK, I'm trying to explain to you, Michael, with, 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 with total honesty here. That has to be decided on every site as you go through it. You look at the needs mm. for the area, you look at the prices for the area. So let's take an example. If you were selling houses in Roscommon, you wouldn't need to have a cap because houses are still very affordable there, mm. OK? It's different then in different parts of the country. So you have to now make those decisions on a site by site, and that's what we're doing here. And in some cases, there'll be guidelines, and other cases there might not be. But then, why are we doing this? We're doing this because we want to increase the supply of housing for all the sectors: the private, the affordable, and the mm. social. We want to make sure that you put competition in the market, because you can see in some cases where land land hoarding goes on and people hold sites. So, if the states are in the business of competing. And, and, and using their land to build houses, it'll bring in competition and it'll help move other sites as well. So and and who, more houses. who, Minister, do you think will be able to afford the affordable houses? Well, again, if you look at last year and look at what's happening at the moment with the delivery of houses, about 70% of first-time buyers last year bought a house under 320000 Okay, uh, and in most cases, if you if you look at um, the, you know our own mm. affordable housing and our own affordable loan, it's kind of we we designed an affordable product there for someone to be able to buy a house uh, on an income of up to up to eighty thousand, two incomes together, 
can can buy a house, can afford a house roughly the two sixty, two seventy, up to three hundred percent, depends on the deposit, three hundred thousand, depends on the deposit. So, but mm. again, Michael, the price of a house is dictated by different areas in some cases. So we will try to reduce the cost of that, reduce by, by using state land. So, Actually, if you get scale, so couples are couples cu- couples with with a, a joint income of less than eighty thousand euro will not be able to afford affordable housing. So, if people can't afford housing in this country, Minister, what are they to do? Yeah, and that's why I want. Can I? I I'm going to try and be clear as I possibly can. By using the state land, you can make housing more affordable. I've given you an example. The target here is 320,000. No, it's not the target. I've given you an example of what's happened in the last year to let you know that people are out there. Cole Murphy was out yesterday saying 320,000. No, again, he gave an example. We're we're saying that generally affordability is recognised somewhere between 240 and 320. Within that bracket is affordable for, for, for the majority of people where they have two incomes in a house and not for everyone. No, others need houses. So, so joint, income of six, joint income of 60 to 80,000 then, is it? Yes. If you're right. So, so for, for couples who don't have a joint income of 60,000 or more, what are they to do? Exactly, Michael. That's why I'm saying I only gave you one example of what's happening today. What I'm saying is if you manage this land properly and build at scale, you will be able to bring forward houses in many different price ranges, different types of housing to suit different mm. people's budgets. And people can uh, can buy houses at affordable okay. prices and rent. They can use social houses. But again, and, I, and I'm not trying to be smart with you here, but the price of housing is very different in every county. Mm. So you have to judge every site and every county differently. And we, that's... We're now going to have a team of people mm. who will do that on our behalf. Okay. And bring forward houses at the right price to give people that choice that they don't have in enough places today. Okay. I've given you examples of what's happened in the last year. Okay, we're now intervening in a greater way and to bring forward a lot of houses and thousands of houses at different price ranges. Now that's the long. And you do so at boiling day. point, Minister, as I, I think we've been seeing uh, on our televisions from Dublin this week, uh, and the anger that people feel uh, and the action that they're taking uh, and how that has turned into a situation. I'm not sure do you agree uh, when you look at, at members of uh, the Gardaí uh, policing uh, that situation in Dublin. Did they look like the KGB to you, Minister? Yeah, again, Michael, I want to go back to what I said at the start. Uh, just in case people are confused that we're sitting back and doing nothing for years to come. This is this piece of work announced yesterday is one action of about 80 different actions we're doing. It's long-term planning to deliver, help this state get back to building over mm. 30,000 houses per year. So let's back that to one side. What we're doing today at the moment is working in the social housing department along with the private housing sector, mm. and you will see about 20,000 houses coming through this year. 8,000 of them will be for social housing use. So we are intervening mm. in a major way already. But when you see uh, coppers with balaclavas yeah. and battens, Minister, do they look like the KGB to you? Look, I've, I've, I've seen uh, that guard unit around the city doing other, other jobs as well. They know what they have to do. I'm not going to dictate to them what they should or shouldn't wear. They know what they have to do. They, that, that, that's a situation where people are in the house illegal and they're being, being we, removed. Do, do, I'm not going to dictate. I'm not asking you to dictate. I'm asking you, do you think they look like the KGB? I don't think they look at the KGB. They're doing their job and good luck to them. And you don't have an opinion on what they were if we live in a a country where the police force looks like a militia? Michael, just to be clear, okay, I do not 
dictate. No, I'm not asking. I'm asking you for your opinion. I'm not asking I'm, you to I'm dictate. I'm giving you my opinion. Yeah, right? it they doesn't bother you. Job. It doesn't they bother you. Do, they have to do their job. You're not. You're not ashamed to see job. scenes on the television like that. Have to do their job and good luck to them. And oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah um, I'm not uh, going to tell them what they should or shouldn't do, how they should wear. They do the job responsibly. They protect. The hiding state. behind that, hoods. That unit have to, and, and I, because I, I see them a lot in my walk around Dublin when I'm driving around. They, I, they have to do their job and they have to protect themselves when they're doing that. So and we can expect more of that, can do. we? Well, hopefully you won't, Michael. But people were breaking the law. So what do you want to do? Like, you no. can't have every which way. So, what's the argument? Two wrongs make a right. You're, you're saying it's wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm telling you. Those people in those houses illegally, okay, illegally, and they should not have been there. And the, the justice system told them to leave, hmm. so it had to be dealt with, and it was dealt with. And I want to be very clear here: what I think they're doing is unnecessary. Um, uh, taking over these houses, it's not needed. We are intervening and bringing forward a lot of housing solutions. And again, last year, over four thousand seven hundred people were helped out of a homeless situation by the state. Taxpayers' money being well spent, two billion of it will be spent hmm. this year providing housing solutions. And I think people have to recognise that their money is bringing forward homes to people. Yes, we would all hope, and I certainly would wish, that we wouldn't have thousands of people in emergency accommodation. They're in family hubs and their hotels, not where anyone wants them to be. But we're, we're finding houses for them every day of the week now. There's new housing supply coming in, and that's the way you address a housing situation, not breaking the law. Okay. Minister, thank you, as always, for joining us here on the programme. Okay, That's uh, Fine Gael TD for me, the West, Damien English, who's uh, Minister of State with special responsibility for housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed launched its 25th edition of Working for Work uh, this week and Robert J. Lynch, Welfare to Work Manager with the the INOU, is on the line. Good morning, Robert. Uh, This is updating the existing Working for Work publication that you have, which outlines rights and entitlements for unemployed people and the routes back to work in some circumstances, but yesterday, I suppose, given that it was uh, the 25th edition of this, uh, it was also uh, an opportunity to speak to the Minister. What did Regina Doherty have to say to you? Good morning. Um, the, we, we welcomed the comments and the engagement by the Minister and the Department in relation to the publication. Uh, they've been funding the publication since its inception 25 years ago and have been fully supportive both in the actual physical production of the content and in providing the finance to produce the publication. And I think there's been a recognition both by the Minister and her department in relation to the role that the publication plays and the organisation plays in supporting individual unemployed people with information and advocacy services in relation to them making the progression from welfare into work. I think it was recognised that it can be a difficult path, it can be a stressful path, um, it can be frustrating, but it can also be difficult in relation to some of the technicalities and awareness of some of the supports that's available. Mm. So I think the, the most important message that came across yesterday, both from the Minister and from the other speakers, including our own chairperson and the coordinator of our organisation, is that the key, most important factor is, at the heart of all this, is the client, is the customer, is the unemployed person. And the role of all the service providers, the department and ourselves, is to work with that person, identify where they are, identify what they need to help them make the progression from welfare into work, and then to work with them to provide the information and the supports as efficiently, as effectively, as cohesively as possible to make sure that they obtain all the supports they're entitled to, 
all the benefits they're entitled to to make the progression back into work a quite simple and quite easy hmm. but also to make work pay and that's one of the most important things about the process ensuring that hmm. there's a benefit to the individual in going back to work and i'm sure you'll always have people who don't want to work but i'm equally sure that for the majority of people it's a, a terrible thing to be unemployed most people do want to work and uh, there's an awful stigma attached to being unemployed whether that's your own self-perception or the perception of others uh, it's hard not to feel as though uh, there's something wrong in your life but for some people it's more difficult to get back to work when you're unemployed than it is for others because of personal circumstances or perhaps the entitlements that you have on welfare or family size for that matter. There are a number of issues. I mean, uh, we, we, we would never come across anyone who doesn't actually want to work. Um, we come across people who would be at different stages in their lives. And at this point in time, they may be more appropriately on a disability payment or a carer's payment or a whole range of other payments, but eventually will find their way back into the role of a job seeker. Um, there, there are issues and concerns about people losing out on things in returning to work. And effectively, it actually pays to return to work. We have things like the back-to-work family dividend, the working family payment. We have a payment which, which is which is effectively known as payment pending wages. So, for example, where somebody is taking up a job and the, they get paid on a monthly basis or they get paid in a couple of weeks' time and there's a gap between when their social welfare payment stops and when they start work, there's provision for them to receive payment from the state in relation to the previous social welfare payment in order to qualify for that. So um, a lot of the concerns people have would be based on lack of information, lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. Just another example, another concern that most people have is around their medical card. And what they don't realise is that when they return to work, whether it's full-time or part-time, they can keep their medical card for three years, irrespective of how much money they earn. So it doesn't matter how much money they actually earn, they will keep their medical card for three years. And that's a hugely important safeguard and security for them, particularly where they may have young children or particularly where there's illness in the house and they would have regular visits to the doctor or maybe on significant prescription medication. Mm, Indeed, Uh, and it can be worth quite a a lot depending on those circumstances. I I gather the Minister didn't give any indication of an increase in welfare payments to you yesterday. It seems as though most people are discounting that idea at this stage. At this stage, we, we, we haven't had any feedback in relation to whether or not that's likely to happen. It's always a case of we will find out, like everybody else, um, when the budget occurs. Uh, we can't preempt or predict. We would be hopeful that the, the minister and the government would listen to the call that's being made by a w- wide range of groups and organisations in relation to people regarding their income on social welfare and the need to increase the payment, to increase their uh, standard of living, to increase their ability to provide for themselves. And we would be hopeful that such provision would be made in this budget. But until and unless we hear it announced, we're just simply keeping our fingers crossed at this stage. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Robert, for joining us. Robert J. Lynch, Welfare to Work Manager with uh, the INOU, the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll talk once again now about uh, the cervical check scandal and uh, Dr. Gabriel Scully's review of uh, the national screening programme with Liz Yates, who's Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Marie Keating.
Rating Foundation. Good morning, Liz, and thanks for joining us. I know that you want to talk about the 50 recommendations and moving forward to improve screening and the outcomes for the women as a result of this audit. But perhaps we could look back, first of all, and you've said that you were both disturbed and shocked by what Dr. Scully had to say. Absolutely, Michael. Um, I think uh, Dr. Scali's in-depth report um, was was very comprehensive. It looked into a a very wide range of aspects of the cervical screening programme. And I suppose what was most shocking and disturbing to to us was the the way in which women were advised of, first of all, their cancer diagnosis, but secondly, uh, the way they were advised of the audit results um, in a very discompassionate and lack, uh, manner, which was lacking in empathy. Um, and um, some of the examples which mm. permeate the report, uh, you could tell that, that Dr. Scali was absolutely um, shocked uh, himself. He was... Um, as, as Dr. Scully said, uh, the way the information was withheld from the women when it was known to others and then how the women were just as angry to learn uh, uh, of that information because of how it was told to them. Uh, they were told to watch the news that nuns don't get cervical cancer and uh, there was references uh, to a deceased woman's smoking habit. Absolutely, um, which is absolutely offensive, insensitive, hurtful, damaging. I mean, you could use a lot of different uh, words to describe it, but obviously and clearly uh, there was no proper policy of open disclosure in our health system. Um, It seemed to be very much left up to the, the clinician themselves to decide whether or not they would relay the news and there was no kind of advice given as to how that news should be delivered. Well, it continues and, to be the case, doesn't it? And that is one of the very important mm. recommendations in Dr. Scali's report, that the whole system of open disclosure and candour to patients needs to be rehauled and revised, um, and that that should be, that whole revision process should be overseen on a, a wide-scale committee, but including a minimum of two patient representatives because sadly lacking has been the voice of the patient in this. Mm. And that is why to us it was very heartening that Dr. Scali, in all his recommendations, have the patients, the, the 221 women and their families at the centre um, of, of, his, of his findings and his recommendations. Some of the problems are outside of his remit and outside of the jurisdiction of the state. And one of the issues that now needs to be examined is what happened in Austin, Texas, and the clinical pathology laboratory, which settled Vicky Phelan's case with her. People will read in the Irish Times today that the work being done there was being carried out mainly by people who were in a training role. But of course, then on top of that, they were outsourcing it, it seems, uh, to other laboratories in San Antonio, Victoria, Texas, Las Vegas, Nevada, Orlando, Florida, Honolulu and Hawaii. That's right. And that was quite shocking. Uh, And indeed, Dr. Scali himself was quite shocked by that revelation. And it's one of the, the matters which he has been engaged by the Minister of Health to follow up on and to continue his investigation into that. Uh, the lab in question, CPL, um, is no longer one of the labs that is 
um, uh, involved in terms of the, the testing of our uh, our smears. But at that time, the contract was with uh, CPL based in Austin, Texas. But Dr. Scali, through his uh, thorough investigation, found out, as you said there, Michael, that actually um, it wasn't necess- it wasn't just that the uh, the Texas the Austin, Texas um, uh, lab that was um, scrutinising the Irish smears, but they had in turn outsourced it to other operations in Honolulu, Florida, San Antonio and Victoria. Which was at odds um, with their contract and it wasn't known here, it seems. Uh, we'll just hear a, a little bit of what Dr Scully had to say about this now. Uh, I need to be guarded in this. These are difficult legal issues. And uh, I've outlined in the report some of the questions we need to answer. But you're quite right. The, the dispatch of slides elsewhere in the United States was not revealed to uh, cervical check. They knew nothing of it. Of that, I am absolutely convinced. Uh, the contract very clearly specified Austin. Very clearly specified Austin. Uh, I um, I'm, I'm going to be investigating the issue and I will need legal advice about what, what I can describe that as. Uh, so if you'll excuse me, I'll be guarded uh, for the time being. Um, you know, I can be frank about these matters, but I can't be foolish. That's Dr. Scully speaking two days ago at the press conference he gave and uh, clearly highlighting some of uh, the problems that... I suppose the state faces in terms of getting justice for these women. Uh, yes, and I think it is important to point out that CPL is no longer a current hmm. provider. Um, and Dr. Scali did say that the, uh, the, the current laboratories that um, are being used by the cervical, uh, cervical check are meeting the regulatory requirements Indeed. in their respective countries. Now, I do think it is it obviously... Um, that whole laboratory services contracting and procurement uh, is one of the uh, matters that will be um, included in his further recommendations. And as I said, he, uh, Dr. Scally himself is going to continue his investigation into that particular contract, uh, which has expired with CPL. Um, so, so hopefully we will get to the bottom of that and find out exactly um, what happened um, on that occasion. I'm sure, Liz, uh, like many people, you've seen many reports over the years and many recommendations being accepted uh, by governments of uh, the day and uh, a promise to implement them. And that's the situation we're in at the moment, and that is very positive because this is the roadmap to safe screening and possibly even the eradication of uh, cervical cancer because uh, that's what they're talking about in Australia because of the success of uh, the HPV programme and so on. Uh, so there is... Uh, much reason for hope, uh, but... Uh Absolutely, Michael. I do think, you know, this is, is a revolution, really, for women's health. Um, and I think, you know, it behoves on all of us to ensure that, A, that cervical screening continues. And there are about 20% of the current cohort of women who are not availing of screening. And while it's not 100% effective, um, it does save thousands of lives and we mm. and uh, all our other partners, the Irish Cancer Society, the Irish Patient Association, w- absolutely would encourage women to continue to avail of screening. 
Um, at the end of next year, um, there will be a new screening test, a HPV test, which will uh, ensure that um, 18 out of 20 um, precancerous changes will be picked up in that for every 1,000 women screened. So it's a more accurate test in the current process. Um, and furthermore, with HPV vaccination, as you know, there is a, a, a national vaccination scheme for girls mm. in schools. So girls in first year in schools can avail of that. And again, we would encourage every parent of a, of a, of their, of a daughter to ensure that their daughter gets vaccinated. It's very important, not just for cervical cancer, but for a range of other types of cancer, the head and neck, throat. Um, other types of cancer as well. As I and say, it Liz, is our hope that that will be extended to mm, boys as mm, well. As part I, I of think the there's a, a commitment to do that from the Taoiseach as, as well. As, as I say, we've seen other reports over the years that have spoken uh, about uh, misogynistic, paternalistic attitude from doctors, as this one does. Uh, one of the recommendations Dr. Scally makes is that there would be two patient representatives on a re-established Taoiseach board. Uh, do you think that? could bring about an end to that type of attitude? I would hope so. I, I, I mean, I think it's very unfortunate that um, obviously cervical, cervical cancer affects women and it seems to have mainly been men who have been uh, involved in terms of disclosing the, the audit results, etc. And I think a, the, the main issue is that, that open disclosure and candour policy. I think uh, it's very important that all our medical the practitioners or healthcare professionals um, receive annual training in terms of, you know, trying to deliver and impart very difficult news. Um, I know all of our own nurses here at the Marie Keating Foundation undergo such training all the time every year because we're dealing with patients and it's very sensitive. You know, people are, are fighting something that's very difficult physically, emotionally, psychologically. And I think... Uh, if, if if there's a proper policy in place and secondly, periodic and regular training for everybody and involving patients at the heart of that policy as well, um, you know, I think that can only uh, improve things for the better. OK, well, look, thank you for joining us here this morning. Liz Yates is the Chief Executive Officer of the Marie Keating Foundation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Good morning, Michael. And we really do have a mention of comments to get through, all in relation to your first interview with the Junior Housing Minister, Damien English. A listener phoned in to say, Damien English has been challenged now with another election plan, as this listener puts it. But at the end of the day, how many houses are really going to be built? And please Please ask Damien the next time he's in and many houses are going to be built in Drada, the biggest town in the country. They won't tell you, will they? Because it's all talk, talk, talk. Another caller says Damien is all talk and no action. By the time these houses will be built, I will be down under. And I don't think he's referring to Australia. Okay, maybe it's New Zealand. (laughs) Anthony says there is an empty council house in his estate and it's been unoccupied since before last Christmas. He says it's a crying disgrace to see a perfectly good house lying idle and boarded up when there are people crying out for homes at the minute. He wants to know how the housing minister can claim so confidently that government are making inroads on the housing list when they can't even organise local authorities to turn over these empty houses on a quicker basis and get them ready for the people who need them. Okay. 
Charlie phoned in and he says he wouldn't have a whole amount of confidence in this new government agency. He says his main concern about it would be the provision of services to go hand in hand with any site they do develop under this scheme. We've seen it all too many times in the past where permission was given for large sprawling housing estates without any thought about the provision of adequate infrastructure and services and it's very hard to fix those problems retrospectively. If government do manage to make this work they have to make sure they've done their homework. It's all well and good building these houses but it's equally important to provide the infrastructure. Okay, and I, I take it by that he, he means schools and shops and playgrounds and that sort of thing. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mick from Fingal phoned in and he says more pie in the sky promises from this government. He believes Ireland is getting too lopsided and what he means by that is that it's all Dublin, Dublin, Dublin. What about the rest of the country? He says that farmland in Leinster uh, should be used as a reproductive, uh, as a productive item, a productive item because it's such good land. And he says there is bad land down the country. So it makes sense to him that industries should be sent down the country because where industry goes, houses and people will follow. It shouldn't all be Dublin based, says Mick. Okay. Fiona says, good morning, Michael, listening to Damien English interview. Are we now just talking about another quango? Hmm. Well, uh, the government says not. They're talking about an agency with great expertise uh, that will have uh, the wherewithal to develop land and uh, to deliver housing quicker than is uh, the case otherwise. Uh, But let's uh, hear about how... The owners of four-wheel drives are being warned uh, to be vigilant. Uh, Sergeant Dean Kearns, Crime Prevention Officer in Meath, is on the line following what has been a spate of land cruiser robberies. Good morning, Sergeant. Uh, some 15 in recent times. Morning, Michael. How are you keeping? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Yeah, I suppose, look, at that spate is starting from back in the end of May. And I suppose there was a period there... I suppose in early summer there where there was a number of jeeps taken there during the course of the night from uh, organised criminals, for want of a better word. But that has eased off there certainly over the last number of weeks. And what we've seen recently is more opportunist uh, criminals taking advantage of busy farmers. Whether Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even the Jeeps in fields, and I suppose I've taken advantage of that, but there's busy tangity here. And there was one such incident where uh, a Jeep was stolen, the neighbours came out and discovered it in a field, abandoned. Yeah, that's true. And they made contact with the local guard station, and that was recovered. But I suppose from, from the Garda point of view, the, the space that you're talking about, I suppose there was a number taken, as I say, early on in the summer, uh, you know, where, where thieves were breaking into the houses, specifically looking for the keys of the Jeeps. And, and the more recent ones are just a coincidence then, are they? Well, they're opportunist burglars, mm. opportunist thieves, you know, travelling around the county. Uh, and they actually see, you know, the farmers being busy in the fields, the Jeeps are left along the sides of the roads. Possibly in some instances, the keys have been left in or near the Jeep, and I suppose they're taking advantage of that, that opportunity. Uh, and uh, outside of the opportunistic ones, when you go back to the criminal gang and the space uh, which you think was organised, uh, is it your belief uh, that they were being stolen to order? Well, I suppose <clears throat> new machines, when, when these break into the house at night time, you know, they are taking them for a specific reason. Uh, taking them order may not, not, may not be the right term, but they're certainly taking them because there's a market for second-hand parts. Uh, and whether that's brand new Jeeps or brand new cars, I mean, that, that's an ongoing, uh, I suppose, criminal activity for a number of years now. This is, this is nothing new that we've, we've come upon, you know, but it just seems at the moment, our last May, June and July, the Toyota Land Cruisers certainly were, were, were what would appear to be the number one item that they were targeting in those months. Um, quite but possibly for parts, uh, and I suppose the reason I was asking you if they were being stolen to order uh, was because uh, one of uh, the more recent vehicles stolen had a, a 09 reg. Uh, so if that was for specific purposes, uh, it would be for parts, I take it. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, the second-hand value of parts of the Toyota Land Cruises are, are, you know, they are very expensive, and I suppose there's a, there's a big market there for them. And that's probably why they're being targeted, you know. Okay, well, there's uh, food for thought for people, especially uh, about what they do with their keys when they go to bed at night, it would seem. Thank you indeed, Sergeant Dean Kearns, who's the Crime Prevention Officer in Meath. Back to more of your comments. Marie, what else have you got for us? Well, if I can just go back to a few more in relation to the Damien English interview and the New Land Agency. Uh, a listener texted in to say, Damien English states that every one of these new sites under the Land Development Agency will have a team of experts of between 20 and 25 people who will take over the planning, development and management of housing on these sites. Who will these people be? Where will they come from? And who will they be answerable to? Well, it'll be a state agency and it has a a significant budget. Seamus McDonough from Kells was in touch to say, just listening to uh, Damien English there, have Fine Gael learned nothing? Unbelievable listening about so-called free land. We have the GAA land in Kells, the old old GAA centre. There is 4.1 acres of land. The old HSE health centre, two acres of land. Are they going to sell that off cheaply to speculators? And Seamus, who's from the Workers' Party, says we had a well-attended meeting in Kells as part of the public housing campaign. And one of the big issues raised, Michael, was why can't the old and derelict houses in the town of Kells be turned into 
into modern housing units. They're not being used and they could be utilised. So okay. saying something similar mm. to our earlier follow OK, there, yeah, but I think the Minister did address that to some degree, saying that that's a separate issue. The government is working on many fronts on this uh, and uh, the objective of uh, this agency would be to look at land and rather than thinking, well, something should be done with it and allowing it to lie idle, thinking something should be done with it, that they would do something with it and that you'd have a, a panel of expertise who'd be able to bring it into uh, the housing market. A Lobenstown lister contacted us to say that he found the interview annoying because he felt that Damien couldn't answer a question straight. That was his thoughts on it. Okay, well, I don't know. I think uh, from listening to the minister, or at least the worry I had listening to the minister, was it was confusing how the questions were being asked. What planet is Damien English living on? Pat from Brigham wants to know. With his €40,000 a year, they are few and far between. Please give him my number of any one of them that, you know, and he's talking about people that are on these salaries, that there are a lot of people that aren't. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can I just go then to, we had a listener in touch Mm. on Wednesday. Just It was just a a query about the recycling bins, as the listener put it, uh, the bring bangs that used to be at Bolton Square in Drogheda. Apparently they were removed for the flat and were never put back. So people had nowhere Mm. to go with them. So I contacted Louds County Council on Wednesday and they got back to me this morning to say that the good news is that all licensed licensed spring banks have now been put back in place. Okay. So you can go okay. with all your recyclables. <laughs> recyclables yeah. okay. Is that alright Michael? Perfect. Lovely. Okay, thanks for that Marie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said as always we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Marie is uh, going to walk out of the studio and start answering calls if she yeah. gets any now uh, and Maggie also taking calls today. As I say our telephone number is 1850 and you can text us as well on 086 1800 658. The Michael Reed Show on LMFM. Brought to you by Airgrid. Visit our new office at the Avenue, RD Road, Carter Cross. Keen here from Bitter and Twisted Cocktail Bar and Restaurant. Bitter and Twisted has drawn his most mouth-watering steaks cooked to perfection with the tastiest toppings, crusts, cheeses and sauces. On Fresh Fish Friday, we source the freshest seafood you'll ever try to kickstart your weekend. After, why not join everyone upstairs in our rooftop garden bar and enjoy the night with delicious, unique drinks until late. Bitter and Twisted, 79 West Street, Drada. The only place to be. Open Wednesday to Sunday. Find us on Facebook. It's the largest selection yet. Shoe City Castle Blaney, Ireland's largest shoe store, autumn collection in stock now. Shoe City Castle Blaney, your complete shoe store. Hello, hi, it's DIY. Hello, Ray. I understand you're the man that sorted my wife out in the bedroom. Well, uh, I wouldn't say I uh, sorted him. Oh, don't worry, Ray. I'm not on to complain. I actually wanted to thank you. I never had it so good at home. Oh, well, OK. I am here to please. Is there anything I can help you with today? Well, yes, as it happens. With all the traffic up our stairs, I'm needing a new floor. Wood, preferably. She's mad for wood. Oh, no problem. Yeah, call into our showroom. Exit 15 off the M1. And I'll show you our new range of flooring. You ready? <laughs> oh, sorry, Ray. I have to go. Oh, for the love of hoist. 
Living with Cancer Information and Support Day for Patients and their family and friends, organised by Professor Brian Hennessy and the Northeast Oncology Unit, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, takes place on Saturday, September 22nd in City North Hotel, Gormanstown, County Meath. Tickets are free and include refreshments, complimentary therapies and free prize draw on the day and are available from the Oncology Unit, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, Gary Kelly Cancer Support Centre and Cara Cancer Support Centre. Hello, Mick Holcroft here from Holcroft Motors, your main Peugeot dealer for the Drogheda area. Right now you can save thousands of euro on nearly new low mileage Peugeot models with five year warranty. And we have very special finance packages available for them. Don't forget, we have the largest selection of quality used cars in the area. And you can view all our used cars on HolcroftMotors.com. Holcroft Motors, 04198 for peace of mind motoring. The Michael Reed Show on LMFM. Brought to you by Airgrid. Visit our new office at the Avenue, RD Road, Carter Cross. Call Michael now, 1850-715-958. We're about a, a month out from uh, the last chance saloon uh, for a Brexit uh, deal. Uh, at this stage, uh, there's little prospect, uh, it would seem, to a lot of observers of such a a deal being reached, but who knows what will happen. We're promised that there will be unwavering support for Ireland from the European Union and that promise was reiterated in the State of the Union address given by Jean-Claude Juncker this week. Mairead McGuinness, Finnegale MEP, joins us today to talk uh, about what Mr Juncker had to say and where we go from here. And a, a very good morning to you and I'm sure you'll welcome uh, what Mr Juncker had to say in terms of uh, the support for Ireland. Uh, but what does that mean if there is to be a no deal situation because we're hearing this morning a significant body of research telling us uh, that uh, this would pose a a threat to the peace process. Well good morning Michael Um, and uh, you know you're right we are towards the the wire on this. Um, I've just looked at the days to go to breakfast 196 days and 12 and a half hours so people are counting down. Um, I had a meeting this week as others would have. I met Michel Barnier, David Livingston from the United Kingdom and there are enormous efforts going on to make sure we don't reach Armageddon, that what you've just described, that in the case of a no-deal scenario, there's all sorts of risks. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, including to the peace process. Of course, I welcome Michel Barnier's comments uh, in his State of the Union. They're consistent. Um, he has always um, said, and the rest of our colleagues around the table of Europe are supportive of the Irish question because it, it, it's fundamental to the European Union. What's been very difficult, and we've had this conversation before, is to see where the United Kingdom can move in order to make progress because the withdrawal agreement, and let's talk legalese here, Mm. has to be signed off before we can delve into the details of the future relationship. And this was a point I made to David Liddington from the the Cabinet, the United Kingdom Cabinet, this week, that um, while they object to the, the words in the legal text of the withdrawal agreement, uh, which were penned last March, the United Kingdom thus far haven't come forward with their own proposals on those words. And Michel Barnier in, in, earlier this month was in the House of Commons giving evidence. And it's worth recalling what he said insofar as, you know, the withdrawal agreement has to have this operational backstop and it has to be legally sound. But he's, he's not pushing for exactly what's on the table now. He wants the United Kingdom to look and come up with other ideas if they have it. Um, so I think that that's 
the zone we're in now, because really, I suppose, the Irish issue is the, the big question. I mean, clearly, from our point of view, we also need that the future relationship is teased out. Uh, but we, we have to sort out this difficult issue first. And you saw yesterday, even the United Kingdom, looking at a scenario which would be very bad for them in the case that there is a no deal and very difficult for people around the border region as well if there is no deal agreed and if the talks, if you like, um, hit the wall. You know, we, we might see the return of mobile phone roaming charges which would impact on people in our counties. Um, there's also about driver's licenses. There's all sorts of complications. So I mm. think the minds are focused on trying to, to, to get away from that type of scenario. Okay, but uh, if there is no deal and uh, the peace process collapse, let's say, and we return to a situation similar to the Troubles uh, and the type of uh, atrocities uh, that most of us grew up with on this island, uh, what type of support would you expect from Europe then? Uh, Because uh, the European Commission has been talking uh, about uh, increasing the amount of border guards, 10,000 border guards. Uh, Could we see European troops on Irish soil? Oh, God, Michael, I think, uh, first of all, nobody... Nobody is going to allow the peace process collapse, even how difficult this is at the moment. Um, And I I would say of the British Prime Minister, while I disagree with much of what she's doing, she has been very clear about her commitment to Northern Ireland. I think it's really unfortunate that the DUP are propping up her government and that as a result, Sinn Féin and the DUP Mm. not come into government in Northern Ireland. So I don't want to even talk about a scenario you paint there. Oh, but you can't bury your head in the sand. And and, and, and I mean, if I I just could make the point, because I I, I have to say, first of all... I make my point as well, and then then I could perhaps listen. I think that it's very dangerous to uh, paint scenarios like that when, if you listen to the words I said, there was a huge effort being made so that we get to a place where the United Kingdom leaves the European Union and there is no damage to the peace process in Northern Ireland. Um, As to the point you you tried to direct me to, and I will address it, um, the scenario of there being soldiers on the border and that kind of thing, that that is not, in my view, going to happen because it would mean that politics has failed. So hold me to that, if you will, should that scenario arise. But certainly as long as I live and I'm in politics, we're not going to allow that happen. And the work that I do, um, a lot of it is done mm. quietly in rooms trying to encourage people to move and to, to navigate a difficult course, is to make sure we don't reach that Armageddon, the worst, worst case scenario that you have just painted. OK, I, I assume I'm right in saying that neither of us have read this report, but I'm reading in the newspapers uh, this morning that research by Queen's University in Belfast, Ulster University, and the Committee on the Administration of Justice contends that if there is to be a, a no-deal scenario, the headline is that that will have a detrimental consequence for the peace process. Yeah, I've read just the media comments, so I haven't read the report. Uh, as you said, neither, neither of us have had the time to read that yet. And we're all conscious that the peace process um, is, things are difficult at the moment, which should drive us to a place where we don't allow um, a no-deal scenario develop. And, and again, this week, when I talk to um, you know, Barnier and others in this, you know, people are working tremendously hard because of the enormity mm. um, for the peace process, but also for the enormity of normal living well, of people in the European Union. But we won't, have, we, we, we won't have the personnel to police the border. Well, you see, Michael, I'm not going to go with you on that conversation because my energy and my mind is focused on the detail of trying to reach an agreement 
a withdrawal agreement and a future partnership. And I, I, and I would say, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I have ebb and flow in terms of optimism or pessimism. Um, I thought that this week, um, what we're all trying to do, and that's why I'm not going to go in the direction you're trying to lead me, is to de-dramatise the situation. It's really important that we get the research from, from Queen's University, that we listen to these experts, um, but that we don't allow politics um, to be so vocal that we forget about the detail of the negotiations. For example, we had um, the uh, Brexiteers and the Conservative Party coming out with their ideas as to what we might do. And when I was asked about them on the British media, mm-hmm. my view is that look, everyone has an idea and an opinion, but what matters is what the British government comes forward with and what the European Union has proposed. And between those two, if you like, partners, we have to work towards agreement, which will be less than we have today. I think there's no point in saying otherwise. And, and um, again, the State of the Union speech by um, President Juncker indicates mm. that. But on the other hand, the United Kingdom will still be near us. It will be still a, a partner. And we have to shape that future. But I, I don't underestimate the difficulties. And I don't take away from the research which is there. I talk to people in Northern Ireland all of the time. I meet them privately and I arrange meetings for them in the Commission and on human rights and all sorts of issues, children's rights, there are deep concerns about uh, what a no-deal Brexit would do to um, uh, the peace process, which means that both the United Kingdom and the European Union, Ireland included, have to work doubly hard in the next uh, days and months to make sure we don't go there. Okay. Uh, Another significant uh, vote taken in the Parliament uh, this week, uh, which has been a very significant slap on the Hungarian wrist. Uh, What will this eventually mean in terms of improving uh, the administration of Viktor Orban in terms of human rights and uh, democratic society? Well, look, as you, you rightly said, the, the European Parliament voted out of concern as to what's going on in Hungary around NGOs and the universities, the education sector, and indeed around um, strong views around migration. We've given our view. However, this goes back to the Council, which is the member states, and already a number of member states have said they will not support any sanction against Hungary, uh, and all it takes is one to sit with Hungary, and that impedes the process. So perhaps this week was more um, a sign that there is deep concern, a hope um, that Hungary will listen. Although, frankly, um, I listened very carefully to the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, in the chamber, and he tried to paint the um, position of the European Parliament as being against the Hungarian people, which is not the case. It, it, It is more concerned about rule of law issues and other issues happening in Hungary, he didn't indicate any sign of compromise insofar as accepting that there might be issues where you know, progress could be made. Um, and indeed, I, I see an email in my system here, although I haven't had time to read the detail, where um, Hungary is challenging the outcome of the vote. So it was a tough, difficult week politically. I don't have the answer as to what the consequences mm. will be. Um, I think that um, Hungary is not best pleased, and indeed Poland is supporting, uh, and indeed the Czech Republic are also uh, on that side. Do you stand in solidarity with Viktor Orban? Pardon me? Do you stand in solidarity? No, no, and in fact he he spoke in our political group, um, and I I spoke directly Hmm. to him about my concerns. Well, I think that's the point. You're part of the same political grouping in the European Parliament. Yes, that's right. Uh, Hungary is part of the EPP group. 
we've had an ongoing dialogue with Victor Orban. Well, his party is part of the group and could be expelled from the group. Is that something that you'd favour? It is being talked about as to what the EPP will do. I know that if you look at the breakdown of the vote as to how my colleagues voted, over 50% voted, I think it's 56%, that margin may be slightly wrong, um, to sanction Hungary. I think around 26% voted with the Hungarian view, so in other words, not to sanction, and other colleagues abstained. So we will be meeting to discuss the impact of this within our group and what should happen next. Okay. But Victor Orban is, is, is in no doubt as to the concerns, not just in our group, but across uh, the parliament about what's happening. Um, now, he put up a very strong defence uh, of his case, um, but that didn't rest well within the plenary. So uh, Does it rest well with you? Pardon me? Does it rest well with you? No, I mean, as no. I said after, um, just to, to clarify... I mean, he's a bit of a fascist, isn't he? Michael, I'm, I'm really sorry, but every time you cut across me, it's very hard to finish the sentence. I'm not going to call anyone names. It might give you a headline, but I'm not going to do that. Let me just say exactly what happened. After the vote, uh, and I voted to sanction Hungary, we had a, a group meeting where he attended for an hour and a half, and where he was left in no uncertain terms by those colleagues with concern, myself included. I was the last to speak in the debate, and I got much applause for it, um, where we stand. Now, there were also colleagues who support his view. So, insofar as we have divisions within member states and between member states as to uh, orientation and policy, it is reflected across all political groups, and there is also concern around the rule of law in Malta, which is um, a, a socialist government. Um, there are concerns in other countries as well, and they will be coming to the plenary. But as we speak, Mairead McGuinness, uh, you find yourself in a, a situation where your party, Fine Gael, is part of the same grouping as Victor Orban's Fidesz party. Uh, is that something that you're comfortable with, or do you want them to be expelled from the EPP? I'm not comfortable with the um, activities and orientation of Viktor Orban. I respect his position as Prime Minister of Hungary, and our group is having a deep discussion as to what happens next. The leader of our group in the European Parliament voted to sanction Hungary, um, that's Manfred Weber. Uh, So this is not going to settle uh, uh, and that no action will be taken. As to what will happen, whether Viktor Orban responds differently than he indicated in the chamber, none of us know yet. Uh, but, but rest assured, I am not happy with the situation uh, in Hungary, and I think a lot of colleagues and people in Ireland are aware of uh, the rule of law issues, and they're not happy either. Let us just see how this evolves. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Good thank you very much you. indeed, and good morning to you, and thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fine Gael, MEP, Mairead McGuinness. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's talk uh, about uh, the housing crisis and once again about uh, the crisis uh, that there is with uh, traveller accommodation. If you were listening to us yesterday, you'd have heard how Minister Damien English has promised to establish an expert committee, give it about six months to come up with three or four targeted solutions as part of a review of a piece of law that was introduced 20 years ago which should have helped to solve traveller accommodation problems in this country. The result has been 
quite the opposite. In fact, uh, there's double the amount of uh, people who are in need of accommodation uh, than was uh, the case in 1998. And Martin Collins, co-director of Pave Point, is on the line. Martin, good morning and thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning. Uh, as we heard yesterday, uh, to some degree, this is because there's an unwillingness to spend money. Yes, well, uh, Minister Damien English addressed at the AGM of the Irish Travel Movement and there was about 150 delegates there from different travel organisations right across the country. And I have to be honest with you, Michael, and your listeners, in the 35 years I have been a travel rights activist, uh, I, I was just sh- sh- shocked. There was just a near of... of resignation and despair among the travellers and there was a collective message that was given to the Minister uh, that the situation for travellers is getting worse from every perspective, from an educational uh, perspective, a health perspective, an unemployment perspective and in particular an accommodation perspective and so there's no doubt about it the Minister was well aware of that because people articulated that very well at the conference and I have to say the Minister himself it was actually quite uh, re- refreshing to hear a minister actually acknowledge and admit that the 1998 Travel Accommodation Act, which put a legal obligation on local authorities to provide accommodation and develop travel accommodation plans, is not fit for purpose. It's the systems, the structures and the legislation is not fit for purpose. And that's why he has set up this review panel. So it was actually quite refreshing because mm. I've heard ministers at different stages over the last 35 years just being ridiculous and defending and rationalising a system that is just ineffective. And, and the proof of that is in the evidence. We have 1,500 traveller families still in need of accommodation. Uh, travellers living on the side of the road, travellers doubling up in overcrowded conditions and halting sites. That equates to about 6,000 individuals, men, women and children, who are in need, in dire need of accommodation. And, and so that's why we welcome the Minister's commitment uh, to set up this uh, expert review panel and hopefully they'll come up with some concrete innovative recommendations to address the accommodation crisis that travellers find themselves in. Now, mm. Michael, my, my only concern here is, and I said, I actually said this to the Minister at the conference myself, uh, I think he's very sincere, I think he's a very committed individual and he wants to do the right thing, but my concern is I would urge this review uh, to, 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 to be uh, uh, to, to take place immediately and for recommendations to come forward immediately and the reason for that is, my concern is that if this review is prolonged, uh, we we could have a general election and we don't know who's going to be in power. We don't know who's going to be the minister, a junior minister in uh, housing, planning and mm. local government. And that's why I would like to see this review uh, conducted as speedily as possible while Minister English is in office because I, I think he, he comes across very sincere, very genuine and very committed. And that was evident by his remarks uh, at the mm. conference. But six months is too long, you think? I think it's too long because mm. at this stage, like when we when, when we look at the media, the print media and broadcast media, uh, a lot more people, you know, uh, political commentators and politicians themselves are beginning to talk more and more about a general election. Mm. And my concern is if you have a general election, obviously nobody can predict, predict the outcome. And we don't know what minister will have an office, you know, uh, responsible for travel accommodation. And that's why I'm really concerned that this uh, review uh, is accelerated. 
while Minister English is in office. And yeah, and as we were hearing yesterday, Martin, um, there's a, a real problem or reluctance to spend money. €55 million Euro was spent back to the government because councils didn't spend money that was given to them to provide traveller accommodation. That's over oh. the last 10 years. But would it be right to say that some parts of the country are better than others? Because we heard from councillors in Mead yesterday uh, who I think genuinely told us uh, that uh, issues are being dealt with uh, as best as possible. Well, look, at, I, I'm not going to get involved in setting up a, a league table. I, I would, mm. I would say, look at right across the country. You know, a six of one, a half a dozen the other. I think, I think all. All local authorities. I think the system collectively is failing travellers, and that's reflected, you know, in in, in 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 the statistics. The number of travellers who are homeless. Every local authority since 1998 have actually failed to meet their targets in what is termed the TAPS, which is the Traveller Accommodation Programme. No local authority have met their targets, and and all local authorities have underspent the budget that was allocated to them. And that's and that's the crisis. That that's the tragedy. Mm. You know, uh, the, the, the it, money is available, funding is available. Local authorities are not drawing mm. down the funding, and they're not building uh, the accommodation that's so badly needed. And the thing is, and this is the crisis, yeah. this is the, tra- the tragedy. They're not being held to account. They can behave with impunity. Now, we heard Minister Owen Murphy only last week, you know, uh, criticising the local authorities for failing. And, and, and he's absolutely right. Local authorities are not performing uh, their functions properly in terms of providing accommodation. Now, we would like to see Minister Murphy to be much more assertive and to compel local authorities what they're ob- obliged to do under the law and that is provide accommodation. Local authorities or somebody else because uh, yeah. I, I think this was one of uh, the recommendations and if, uh, if I'm not mm. mistaken Martin the problem here is that people don't want to live beside travellers. Uh, the councillors yeah. then decide not to provide the accommodation that is being sought because if they vote in favour of it they might lose their seat because it's an unpopular vote uh, yeah. so then nothing happens and the money is spent back as is the case with the 50 55 million that has been spent back over the last 10 years. So there was a call to take mm. that power away from the councillors and to bypass local authorities and to have somebody else decide on where accommodation would be made available. I, 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 t- I think there's merit in that argument. You know, like we've had the 1998 Travel Accommodation Act, uh, you know, we've had four travel accommodation programmes, what we term TAPS. They have failed miserably. So I think, you know, there is merit in looking at other innovative uh, solutions. And one of them would be uh, some sort of a national uh, independent body that would have the legislative mandate and the resources to, uh, to meet the accommodation needs of travellers. Something maybe equivalent to the to the National Roads Authority, or indeed, more recently, uh, the announcement of this uh, National uh, uh, Land Development Agency. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think that might be a, a, an appropriate solution. But I have to say, in relation to, to this land, uh, National Land Development Agency, where I think 40% of, of the units have to be made available for social and affordable housing, I'm really... A little the concerned here also because I think that's a further uh, commodification and privatisation of what is essentially a basic human right and that is uh, a housing slash accommodation you know so I am concerned mm. and I'm even more concerned uh, particularly from a traveller perspective because this you know this would be in the hands of private de- uh, developers and you know uh, there's a very remote possibility very remote indeed of, uh, that travellers will secure halting sites as part of this National Land Development Agency I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, 
you know, so we need maybe some other approach or some other structure. Neither is the local authority system uh, working because you're right, I think inherently uh, there is some racism within local politics. A lot of politicians and indeed officials in local authorities, uh, you know, don't want to provide accommodation because it's not a very popular thing to do. Mm. So look, all of the evidence is pointing uh, in one direction. And that is the system is not fit for purpose. It has failed Travers. It's time for the Department of the Environment, uh, in, in partnership with Traveller organisations, sit down and come up with a more innovative, uh, effective solution. And that's why I'm looking to this independent review panel, this three-person uh, independent uh, review panel. Uh, I'm looking forward to their recommendations, but I would urge them to speed up the process while Minister Damien English is in office. All right, we're going to have a, a lot of uh, talk and political discourse on housing over the next couple of weeks. We'll have a, a confidence motion in Own Murphy but then I think it's on the 3rd of October there's a, a private member's bill. Uh, it's an opposition, opposition bill which would be put forward by uh, the People Before Profit Party but on behalf of all of the opposition and the mm-hmm. Raise the Roof campaign That's which right. would give this constitutional right to a home to people in this country and that undoubtedly has your support as well. Oh, absolutely. And look, at that. I actually raised that at the conference myself. I would encourage every single traveller organisation in the country to come out on the 3rd of October uh, and to be part of this uh, campaign, uh, Raise the Roof campaign. I just look at people are sick, tired and fed up and disillusioned at, at different launches, different housing strategies, rebuilding Ireland, uh, you know, and all the bells and whistles that go with that and all this PR stunts. And on the ground, the situation is getting worse, not just for travellers, but also for members of the majority population. The homelessness uh, situation, uh, uh, you know, is increasing, it's getting worse. And all we hear and see is is razzmatazz launches, uh, you know, strategies, uh, as I say, bells and whistles. But the reality for people on the ground is, is quite... Bleak, you know, people living in B&Bs, hotels, uh, uh, children's education being uh, disrupted. Uh, you know, it is a national crisis. I agree with, with, with organisations like Focus Ireland and Peter McFerry when they say it's a national crisis and the, the present approaches and strategies are totally uh, ineffective. And, and, and we, we just need other solutions. Okay, Martin, it's always good to talk to you and thank you for taking the time to speak to us this morning. Martin Collins, co-director of Pave Point. Michael Reed on LMFM. There are 55,000 people with uh, dementia in uh, this country and according to the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, that figure will double to 113,000 over the next 20 years or so. It wants 12 million euro to be allocated in next year's budget towards community supports for people with dementia and Cormac Cahill, spokesperson with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland is on the line to tell us why. Good morning, Cormac. Uh, It's a a lot of money uh, that you're calling for next year, but it's not a a figure that you've plucked out of the year, and you're asking people to meet with you in Drogheda on Monday to break down how that money would be spent. Exactly, yes. Um, Basically, on Monday, our South Loud branch um, are are going to be calling on all the local public representatives, whether they're TDs or county councillors, basically discuss this um, investment that we are looking for this year. It's in the region of 12 million euros and that's towards all community supports for people with um, with uh, dementia. So basically it can be broken down and again this this kind of 12 million we're not talking here about creating you know a great service or, or a fantastic service. What we're calling for here is a basic minimum uh, uh, service for people with um, dementia. Some of these are very very key community supports 
things like um, dementia advisors. Um, we're talking about kind of key workers, uh, and and again the, the the bulk of it, which is the which is the seven million. We're basically looking to kind of create this basic minimum standard of community services. So like so loud um, as a, as a as a county, for mm. one example, um, it isn't uh, unusual. Uh, uh, in the sense that every county in Ireland is basically struggling with these kind of basic minimum uh, services, so so there is no kind of county in, in, in Ireland, if you like, that is resourced properly. But some um, do better than others, do they? Uh, I think you've said it's a, a geographic lottery. It is absolutely. It's the same old po- po- postcode lottery. Unfortunately, I mean, I mean, Loud, for example, um, has some fantastic services there. Um, you know, has 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 like a, 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 a brilliant um, daycare centres, but it, but it doesn't have things like, you know, dementia-assisted technology libraries, or it doesn't have, you know, dementia social clubs, or, you know, people with dementia support groups. You know, the, the types of funding that we're, we're, we're calling for uh, is to kind of, you know, put in place or to enhance or to create, like, like services like Alzheimer cafes, dementia care support groups, and dementia family care programmes. These are key community services to help people stay in their own communities, in their own environment, where in the region of 63% of people want to actually, actually uh, 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 remain. And again, this is kind of based on the fact that there was a mapping project done mm. by ourselves in the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and the HSE's National Dementia Office. And that kind of, kind of found that um, um, access to these kind of community dementia-specific services across Ireland very much depends on on where you live and as I said earlier on no county in Ireland really has, has an accessible level of dementia support so while we're while 12 million might sound like a lot of money it's 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 we're talking here about plug, plugging plug, plug, plugging the gaps and only when you start plugging the gaps can you really start to build on that so we'd love to build kind of a solid uh, platform or foundation going forward and the only way to do that is start plugging these gaps and again the gaps that we've we, mm. we, we, we've identified are these key the, uh, and what difference do you think it, it makes, Cormac? Uh, I mean, you talked about people staying in their own communities. Uh, that would seem like a, a gap worthwhile filling. Uh, if they don't stay in their own communities, where do they go? Well, I mean, the, there are a number a number of options open to people. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, there is long-term care, there are nursing homes. I mean, what what we hear all all the time from people with dementia and their families and carers is is, is, is that predominantly a lot of people want to remain in their own community, and that's where mm. we're looking this year with these um, with these supports. There are a number of unmet needs out there, not just in Loud and not just in other counties, but right right across the the country. So, if you don't plug the gap, there are options. But uh, it sounds from what you're saying that the reality of the options is uh, that you're looking at something that's far more expensive. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, we feel by put, putting in places these things like Alzheimer cafes and support groups, family care programs, these are helping to keep people in their own community, in their in their in their own homes. Which, which again, sixty three percent of people with dementia, that's where they want to uh, re, uh, remain. Uh, uh, we we really feel that you know this event on on Monday will give these you know public re- representatives a great opportunity to kind of. Have a look at what are the community sports that are needed. What are the different things that a community could put in place to help people stay in their own communities? And we're we're really hoping that public representatives will come on Monday 
mm. um, uh, up to the trade of daycare centre to meet staff, to meet members of our South Lake branch who are doing fantastic work, who are volunteers, and to learn really more about why this investment is needed and, and why this investment in community support is so well needed right across the country. Again, to create that basic minimum level of support, um, and that's what what the what is. 12 million, that's what we're about. Mm. And, and I suppose it may not always be possible to keep people in their community, but to do so for as long as possible, uh, I think is the intention of what you're saying. Uh, and uh, regardless of whether somebody is being treated in the community, able to stay at home in their own home or receive uh, some sort of institutional care, nursing home care, as the case may be. There are other people involved, and uh, this is one of uh, the roles of uh, the dementia advisor, which you want to see a budget allocated for, which would uh, deal with uh, the families as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the dementia advisor is a great example of a community support. So it's really an invaluable support, really, and a resource for people to get information um, to be signposted to different services and to get this information in their, in their own homes on a, a one-to-one basis, if you like. We, we, we have a total of eight uh, dementia advisors right across the country. And I know, they, I know in the Loud area, you have a fantastic uh, dementia advisor, Maeve Montgomery, who does fantastic work. Mm. Um, but basically, we need more of these types of services right across the well, I gather that that's that post, postcode lottery that you spoke about. Uh, lucky in that sense, and loud, and there's pros and cons in different pockets of the country, and it's to plug those gaps, as you said at the outset. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there are a number of these different gaps right across the country. Some counties are 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 lucky luckier than than others, if if mm. you like. And I know that the the uh, South Loud branch. Um, uh, are doing fantastic work. Volunteers who are kind of giving giving up their, their okay. time. To, okay, listen, I, I'm just out of time. So just to mention to people, it's at four o'clock on Monday afternoon that you're asking all public representatives and indeed anybody else interested to meet with you at the Trade Act Daycare Centre in Drogheda on Monday, as I say, at four o'clock, and it'll go on for about an hour or so. Cormac, okay. thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Cormac Cahill, spokesperson with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, brings our programme to its conclusion today, indeed, for this week. Our time is out. A podcast available on lmfm.ie this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris at the control term. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.